0: Alright, we are in Matthew chapter 20, looking this morning at the the entire chapter, so please go ahead and turn there and and get prepared. As you are turning, we will uh, read a a portion of the scriptures, we will go back to chapter 19 um, and pick it up there in verse 27 because chapter 20 really is a continuation of chapter 19. The chapter headings and divisions weren't done really until around the 1500s. are probably all familiar, familiar with the Gutenberg Press when the, the first Bibles were being printed and so they uh, figured that they should put some addressing system in, so that was that's the chapter headings and the verses to help us, which we're grateful for, but they don't always break in the best places. So this morning we are going to begin reading back in chapter 19, verse 27, that'll be up on the screen if you need it. Uh, I'll be reading aloud, and you can follow along. So picking it up today in Matthew nineteen twenty-seven. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. And they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out And found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. So he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they murmured against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and we trust that you have something here for each one of us as we go through this today. And we know, Lord, it will be challenging. There will be things that come up today that sort of affect us where we are and how we think and how we live. And Lord, as always, we know that as we come together, as we we devote this small percentage of our week to dedicating our focus and our heart and our mind to you that it's so important that we learn and that we grow and that we be challenged by your word and so we open our hearts to you this morning in Jesus' name we pray amen so last week in chapter 19 that's why I went back and read picked it up there where Peter had said to Jesus after the encounter with the rich young ruler, and he had walked away sad because uh, his possessions and his money was his God. Peter then said to Jesus, of course, we've left everything to follow you. What shall we have? What are you going to do for us, Lord? And so Jesus said to him those things that we read there about how In the regeneration or in the new age, when Jesus comes to bring his kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, speaking to his disciples who were or would become the apostles. And so we talked about that in depth last week. And he talked about the depth of sacrifice in verse 29. People who have left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother and all those things for my name's sake. And he talks about the reward that he would give, but he finished it. He punctuated what he said in verse 30 with a saying, which was, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then he said that again during the the course of the parable that he gave of the workers in the vineyard. Because he said there in the middle when he said it's time for them to come and to receive their payment for their day's work. He said, uh, line them up. He said to his steward, line them up. And so the last, the ones who came into work last, pay them first. And then make the ones who came at the beginning of the day, the first, make them to be last. And then at the very end in verse 16, he again sort of harped on this to illustrate the principle. And he said there in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. So three times here he illustrates or refers to this principle of the first being last and the last first. So what is this all about? What does this mean? And how does this apply to us? Well, as we read this parable, there's a few things that we need to remember about parables. The word parable means to cast alongside. So we are taking uh, an earthly parable, Known earthly reality, and we are using it, or Jesus is using it in this case as the master teacher to illustrate a heavenly truth or a heavenly reality. So we are laying the two things beside one another so that God Himself can teach us from the things we know about the things we don't yet understand. One thing that's important to note about this parable is that it really has nothing to do with salvation, it's an illustration of what it means to have a servant's heart. So it speaks really to those of us who are saved and who say as people who belong to Christ, who are marked by the name of Jesus and saved by the blood of Christ, that we want to serve the Lord. And so this is demonstrating or emphasizing a right attitude in service. And so that's what we're going to deal with here today. So as we had read the parable here, uh, beginning in chapter 20, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. You know, this is foreign to us here in the northeast. But if you travel to the desert southwest, to southern California, you actually see this being practiced today. Today, Uh, And in any place that's agricultural, there will be migrant workers or people who don't have a regular job. And early in the morning, they will gather in some local place and be there just waiting for someone to come by who needs day workers or day laborers and hire them and pick them up and go out and put them to work in their fields or their factory or whatever they're doing and then bring them back at the end of the day. But keep in mind, this is the Middle East, this is the first century. And during the time of harvest, their work day would be from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Because during the time of the harvest, they were literally racing against the clock to get their harvest in. And so that is the setting for this parable. It's the time of the harvest. A landowner needs to hire workers to help him get his crops, to get his harvest, his produce in before it rots. And for the things that need to go into the storehouses such as grain to gather that and for things that are perishable such as fruit and vegetables either to get them to the place that they can be prepared or to get them to market so they can get into the hands of the people. So the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So early in the morning, 6 a.m., he goes out to the marketplace. He finds these workers. He needs help. And he speaks with them and he says, do you want to work? And it would seem here that there was, if you will, a contract that was entered into where they agreed, you'll come and work for a denarius. Now, a denarius was the common term for a day's wage, whatever that day's wage was. And so they said, yes, we will come and work today from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. We'll, we'll do our 12-hour shift, and we will receive a denarius. And they said, okay. So they got hired, and they got uh, put into the field, and they started their work day. So it says about the third hour, which would be about 9 a.m., Uh, that he went out and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. So that means, of course, rather than working 12 hours, they were going to be working nine hours. And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. So the, the sixth hour would be noon. So those people he hired at noon would be working six hours. And at the ninth hour, that would be 3 p.m., so he would be hiring people to work the last three hours of the day, people who were standing around idle and they weren't working. And about the 11th hour, which would have been about 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing idle, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, and here's the punchline, beginning with the last to the first. So what we're getting here is an illustration of how God thinks, of how God operates. You know, in our In our society, you know, we we tend to put God in a box, and we tend to think God does things the way our society operates, and that's not the case, and that's not the case here. These people had sort of an idea. They had a mental model of how this would work, and so as uh, the the master has the steward line up the workers to pay them their day's wage, he says, okay, take the, the last guy who just worked an hour, line him up first. So he was the last. He was the last guy to get called into the field. Then take the people who were hired at 3 p.m. and then the people who were hired at noon and then the people who were hired at 9. And the guys at the back of the line are the guys who have been there all day long. They put in a full, wearisome 12-hour day. And you have to be able to imagine yourself being there and experiencing this. And just as with the parable of the son, the wayward son, who went out, the the prodigal son. We put ourselves in the position of the, uh, the son who stayed home, who watched all of this happen. Now put yourself in the position of the worker who had been there all day long. And you're watching this thing take place before your eyes, because in your mind, wouldn't you think, I would think, that you'd want the guys who worked all day to be there first to get their wages because we've already been here. Lord, we've been here all day. We've put in a hard day's work. And so when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they received the denarius, meaning a full day's wage. And when the um, first came, so he went through the, the sequence and he paid them, but when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. So if you're at the back of the line watching this and you're seeing each of those guys get a denarius, a full day's wage, you know, okay, the guy's at five, the guy's at three, the guy's at noon, the guy's at nine, they're all getting a full day's wage. And you're like, man, we were here all day. We're probably gonna get a day and a half, two days. I mean, we're gonna get, it's gonna be great. Then they get up there and they suppose that they would receive more and they likewise each also received only a denarius. And when they had received it, they did what all of us would do and what we have done, right? Which is what? Complain, right? Hey, that's not fair. These last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. That's not right. In our day... We'd call the Equal Employment Opportunity Office. We'd call the Governor's Office. We'd be calling the Employment Commission. We'd be, you know, writing letters. You know, we'd be tweeting things. We'd be putting things on Facebook. Hey, don't go over here and work for this company. They don't treat their employees fairly, right? Isn't this how we would handle it? We would take our complaints to the press. We'd go call up WMUR or one of the stations and say, hey, I want to tell you about this inequity over here that's happening. People are being mistreated, and they might even go so far as to say they were being discriminated against, right? Can we, can we hear this, right? Can we understand this happening in our world? And yet they supposed they would receive this and they, they complained against the landowner and they said all these things to him. And he answered one of them and he said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? Isn't that the agreement we had at the beginning of the day? Can I do What I want to do with my money? If I want to be generous with these servants who only worked an hour or three hours or whatever, can't I pay them what I want to pay them? I paid you what we agreed. You see, these people, these folks who had worked all day, and no doubt they had worked very hard and very sincerely. They did not rejoice that others had received more. Instead, they were jealous and they complained. The goodness of the landowner did not lead them to repentance. Isn't that what the scriptures tell us about our Heavenly Father? The goodness of God leads us to repentance. It revealed the true character of their hearts. Jesus was a master of this, wasn't he? The character of their hearts were that they were selfish and self-centered. And this commentator said this, and this is like a bullet through my heart. He says, whenever we find a complaining servant, we know that he or she has not fully yielded to the master's will. Whenever we find a complaining servant, we know that he or she has not fully yielded to the master's will. Doesn't Paul tell us in the book of Philippians, do all things without grumbling and complaining? and he said that because we need to hear it. And Jesus is telling us this parable about what it's like to be a servant in his kingdom that our attitude should be an attitude of rejoicing when people are given their wages, their reward. Now this is an illustration, right? This is not we we can't take this so far and apply it to everything in terms of what will happen at the end of the age when we see the Lord. He's just pointing out the fact that the heart of a servant needs to be a heart that is grateful and we should not be complaining when others receive what we we regard to be an unfair uh, award or reward. This same commentator went on to say it is possible to do the Father's work and yet to not do His will from the heart. If we serve him only for the benefits, the temporal and the eternal benefits, then we will miss the best blessings that he has for us. We must trust him unreservedly and believe that he will always give what is best. Do you remember the story of Job in Job chapters 1 and 2 that There was a day in heaven, you know, we're told this this story first about Job, this man who was righteous and he had this family and he was completely blessed and he had 10 children and he was wealthy beyond belief and things were just going great in his life. But in the heavenly realm, Satan parades himself before the throne of God. And as he goes before the throne of God, he says, you know, Lord, this guy over here, Job, Remember what the Lord said. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan was given permission to go out and test Job. And then he tested Job. And then he came back to the Lord a second time. And he said, you know, Lord, he only serves you because of the blessings. He only serves you because of what you give him. But if you take away the blessing, I guarantee he'll curse you. And in that moment, the Lord said to Satan, scariest thing, some of the scariest words next to, you know, you're condemned to hell. He said, okay, you can tempt him, you can test him, but spare his life. And we know that hell was unleashed on the life of Job as we read that story. And the point here is this, Satan had a charge against Job before God. He only worships you, he's only your servant because you bless him. And that's sort of akin, it's parallel to this issue here that is being brought up by this parable of the landowner. And so the landowner says, and of course in the parable it's, it's, a, it's like, it's making a comparison to something. I think we can understand that the landowner is like Jesus. It's like God himself. And so he says, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't we agree for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. And I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is, it, or is your eye evil because I'm good? And that phrase, that expression, is your eye evil, means is your eye jealous? Are you envious? Are you envious of how I live and what I do with my things? You know, we do this all the time, don't we? We judge people by what they have and by what we don't have. You know, this is exposing the root of our heart. This is a dark and ugly side of our hearts. But to keep it in context, the issue is servants, right? We are servants. He's going to talk about this as we go into the next section here. But he ends this parable by saying in verse 16, So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. What does this mean, for many are called, but few are chosen? You see, the call of salvation is issued to everyone. It's issued to the whole world. It's a global call. And even within the call of salvation for those who come to know Christ and they trust in Him, even then I think we can see, we can understand conceptually, we can perceive that within the church, capital C, of Jesus Christ, that there are people who were serving the Lord and there are people who were sitting on the sidelines who were idle like these workers and so the point is that they weren't engaged they weren't involved in serving the Lord actively they were just kind of standing around waiting for someone to tell them what to do the system of law is easy to figure out you get what you deserve that's what we think the system of grace is foreign to us. God deals with us according to who he is, not according to who we are. Let me say that again. The system of grace is foreign to us. God deals with us according to who he is, not according to who we are. If God dealt with me, and if he dealt with you according to who I am and who you are, you know what we would get, right? You know what we deserve, We are deserving of judgment. We are deserving of the punishment of eternal hellfire. But grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, God's immeasurable love and mercy given to us so freely, saying, come. It's important to see that the landowner did not treat anyone unfairly. Though he was more generous to some than to others, and we can be assured that God will never, ever be unfair to us. That might be a revelation to some of us this morning. God will never be unfair to you. And by the way, he never has been. Though he may, for his own purpose and pleasure, bestow greater blessing on someone else who seems to be less deserving, at least from our point of view, the point isn't that we all have the same reward. Though all God's people do go to the same heaven where they will have a reward in different measure, the point is that God rewards on the principle of grace, and we should therefore expect surprises. He will never be less than fair, but he reserves the right to be more than fair as it pleases him. God's grace operates righteously. I think we're getting the picture that God's grace is foreign to us. This parable is not a perfect illustration of God's grace because the principle of working and deserving is involved. The grace of God does not give us more blessing than we deserve. It gives blessing to us completely apart from the principle of deserving. Let me say that again. The grace of God does not give us more blessing than we deserve. It gives blessing to us completely apart from the principle of deserving. This is so deeply embedded in our heart and our mind, isn't it? Grace is something that God simply gives. Living under grace is sort of a two-edged sword. Under grace, we can't come to God complaining, saying, hey, don't I deserve better than this? Because God will reply, does this mean that you really want me to deal with you according to what you deserve? Grace should be especially manifested in our service. It is of grace, not of works. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us. Here's some things to think about with respect to grace and our service. All of our service is already due unto God. It already belongs to Him. So no matter what we do for the Lord, it already belongs to Him. And understand something. This issue always confuses Christians, the issue of doing. You see, God is far more concerned about our being than our doing. He wants us to be his children. He wants us to be recipients of his grace. And he wants us to understand that the doing is an outflow of the overflow of his grace within us, of his grace given to us. So when we, quote, do something for the Lord, when we serve the Lord, we do that as an offering to Him. We do it, and I I can't say it any better than it's, it's it's an outflow of the overflow of what He has done to us and for us and what He is doing in us and what He is doing through us. Our service should never be driven or motivated by guilt. Our service should only always be driven by grace. The ability to serve God, whatever that ability is, is a gift of His grace. If God's given you a gift or a talent or an ability, that's His grace. That's because He loves you and He wants us to give that back to Him as an offering to bless Him and to bless others. The call to serve God is a gift of His grace. And by the way, every believer has a call to serve God. It's not a call that's given only to certain special people. The missionaries we mentioned earlier, they've listened to the call of God upon their lives and they've gone in obedience to do that. And we look at them sometimes, we sort of elevate them. We put them on a pedestal and we say, well, I could never be like that. Yes, you can. Maybe you don't serve God in the same way they do, But God has given you gifts. He's blessed you. Serve Him where you are, doing what He's given you to do. Use your gift to the glory of God, whatever your gift or your gifts, plural, may be. The ability to serve God is of His grace, the call to serve God is a gift of His grace. Every opportunity to serve is a gift of His grace. Being in the right state of mind to do the Lord's work and will is a gift of grace. I want to stop for a moment, and uh, I have another illustration for you, but I think maybe in 14 years I've done this once. I have a video illustration. So I want you to, as this video is played, it's about four minutes. It's of Alistair Begg. If you know who he is, great. If you don't, you'll know who he is in a couple of minutes. And I want, he's going to give us an illustration of this issue. Can you play that video, please?
1: Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question— If you were to die tonight and and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing— Loved one's the only proper answers in the third person, because he because he If think about the thief on the cross, and oh, what an immense i can't, i, I can 't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him how did that shake out for you because you were you were you were you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend you 'd never been in a bible study, you never got baptized never, you didn't know a thing about church membership and and yet and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, were, uh, uh, did you... Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get their supervisor, Ranger. The su- so, we just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are you, are you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about—let's uh, just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy— while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair— And the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God, the justice satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's why Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense that we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved.
0: I wish I could say that much in four minutes. The man on the middle cross said, I can come. Someone told the story of the thief on the cross being in heaven— and an angel walking up to him and saying, as this man's walking around sort of by himself sulking, he says, you're here. And he says, yes. And he says, why are you kind of, you know, downtrodden? And he says, well, I, I slid in at the last minute. I mean, I, you know, all these other people, they, they, they serve God. And he said, no, 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 look over there in the corner. You see all those people in the corner over there? He's like, yeah. Those people on the left, those are people who are here because of your testimony. Because you, in that last five or ten minutes or however long it was on the cross, you, you believe the word that Jesus spoke to you when you came. And so people are here because of that. And you see the people standing beside them? Those are what we call the deathbed confessions. Right? Those are the people who were literally... You know, they were breathing their last breath and someone was there pleading with them, reading scripture to them, praying over them, and they believed they're here because of you. And you see all those other people to the right of them? Those are people who heard sermons and Bible studies given about, quote, the thief on the cross, and that's you. So all those people over there, they're here because in the last five minutes or 30 seconds of your life, you gave your life to Christ and it got written in the scriptures and it got listed as hope to everyone. And how many times have I, I can't even tell you, been talking with people, visiting someone uh, you know, who's, who's dying and just saying to them, look before it's too late, like that thief on the cross, enter into the joy of your master. That man has such a testimony. That man has a reward. You see, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The thief on the cross had a reward in heaven. He has a reward in heaven. Just like the the person who might have grown up in a Christian home and got saved at an early age and they've been serving God all of their life and maybe they never wandered off the straight and narrow. Praise God for that. But there's everything in between, isn't there? And so no matter where you are, no matter what's happened in your life, you see, you can serve God. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've believed like that thief believed, if you've believed in the cross of Jesus Christ, then God loves you, you're in. He's given you his grace. And his grace is universal. It's not that you know, the good people, whoever they are, get more grace than I get. If I'm on the edge and I'm on the fringe and I'm struggling with walking with God and my obedience, you see, grace is grace. Grace is always given from the heart and from the throne of God to the infinitely ill-deserving and that is all of us. Well, to continue on here, Jesus... Now with his disciples, they're continuing to go up to Jerusalem. This is the last trip. He's headed to Jerusalem. He took his 12 disciples aside on the road. It's like he pulled them aside in a little huddle. And he said, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Here's what's about to happen. The son of man, that's me, will be betrayed to the chief priests. So there's betrayal. And to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans, to mock and discourage and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And then Jesus telling them that, and this is now the third time he's told them this. They hear the first part, but they don't hear the, the part about rising from the third day. And so they're on their way to Jerusalem and within a couple of days they're going to be there. And so somewhere along the way, or maybe perhaps right after they get to Jerusalem, and we know that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, often he stayed with uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They lived just right outside to the east side of Jerusalem. It says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, we know that her name was Salome, came to him with her sons, James and John. And she was kneeling down asking something from him. So she comes and she approaches Jesus in this very humble way. And he said to her, what do you wish? Now keep in mind, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. This is all part of that. And she said, well, would you grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom? So she's there sort of pleading for, you know, could you give them a, kind of the top management spot, you know, vice president of this and vice president of that. Let them sit at your right hand, Lord. Jesus said, Answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And of course, they had no idea. And to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. What's he talking about? The pain, the suffering, what he just told them. I'm going to be delivered up for crucifixion. Do you think you guys can handle that? They said, oh, yeah, no problem, Lord. We can handle that. We're able. We got this. So he said, you will indeed drink my cup. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. So Jesus making here in Matthew twenty twenty three a prophetic statement to them of what would happen. As we know, historically, and in the book of Acts, James and John. James becomes the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 8. He does give his life for the Lord. He does drink of that cup. John, on the other hand, ends up becoming the last man standing. He's the man back in AD 90, 60 plus years after Christ had had died and and been risen again and and, uh, raised to heaven... He's living on the Isle of Patmos, receiving a vision from the Lord, the book of Revelation. He's the last man standing. These two brothers do drink of the cup. John had been boiled in oil. They had tried to kill him several times, but God kept him alive. So they did drink of the cup. Salome, the mother, came and spoke to Jesus about her son's saying, Lord, would you give them a place of prominence? Jesus spoke about a cross, but they were interested in a crown. And isn't that the way it so often is for us? We're looking for the crown. But Paul is the one who said so well in the book of Philippians and in other places, he says, you must suffer the persecution of the cross on your way to meet the Lord. And that's something that we we don't want. We don't want that suffering. We want the good. We want the glory. We want the grace, but we don't want the suffering. So when the 10 heard it, the other 10 disciples, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself. It's about to have a mutiny and an uprising there because mom came in with the two boys pleading her case and You know, just like the parable that we just experienced, the other guys at the end of the line, they were all indignant and upset and complaining because uh, they got paid a day's wage and the guys before them got paid a day's wage for working much less. And so in that same understanding, that same spirit, Jesus called them to himself and said in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. In our world, we might think of the the rich and those who are in management, upper management. Those are the people who lorded over people. Yet it shall not be so among you. This doesn't mean you can't be a manager. Yet it shall not be so among you. This is the attitude of the heart. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant, minister, deacon, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. The the word doulos means slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, isn't Jesus our example in all things? Aren't we to be like him? To serve with no desire of, Reward. Our English word deacon comes from the word servant. The word servant means slave, but not every servant was a slave, but every slave is a servant. Not every servant is a slave, but every slave is a servant. Charles Finney said in his writing called True Saints, There are two types of servants. One who is devoted to his master's interests and the other having uh, no other concern than to secure his own wages. The first, when you go up to him, he throws aside all personal considerations and he enlists with all of his heart and soul in achieving the service of the Lord, of his master. The other, well, he will not act unless you say, if you do this, I will raise your wages or set you in this position. Some enlist at once because they see that it will do a great deal of good to serve their Lord. Others stand back until you come up to them with some means to excite their interests. There's two types of servants. Those who, because of the change inside, because of the goodness of God, their heart, their mind, their soul has been touched and they see it. And they jump right in and they serve. And others are like, well, I'm not going to serve unless there's some incentive. For some to serve, they must have that incentive, something more than that which Jesus has already supplied. A.B. Simpson said on this same topic, this truly represents the highest spirit of service, all for love and nothing for reward. All for love and nothing for reward. So as they are moving along, Jesus encounters these two blind men on the road of Jericho. A great multitude followed Jesus. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them, these two blind men, that they should be quiet. Leave the master alone. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and he called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? So this is like prayer, right? They're crying out to the Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. Jesus is answering their prayer. What do you want me to do for you? Here's their request. Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. You know, Jesus always did things differently. He was on this road and as it were, he's walking down the road. He's basically standing in the middle of the road with this whole crowd of people following him. These two blind men sitting off to the side of the road, begging and you know, crying out, Oh Lord, you know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And the people following behind, you know, sh- leave the master alone. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, open our eyes. And he had compassion in that moment. And Jesus could have stood in the middle of the road and did a little thing like this and said, okay, your eyes are open. Get up. But what did he do instead? He went over to them. He walked up to them. And he touched them. It says right here, he touched their eyes. Can you imagine this? Can you see this in your mind? These guys sitting there kneeling on the side of the road, dirty, dusty, stinky, homeless guys. And Jesus comes up and he touches their eyes and they they can see, touched each one of them. Took the time to go over. And immediately they, they received sight and they followed him. Do our prayers make us easier to live with? The two disciples prayed selfishly and threw the fellowship into an uproar. The ones you know, who said, you know, we want to be sit on your right and your left. Do our prayers make us more like Jesus Christ? Do our prayers cost us anything? Prayer in the will of God does not mean escape. It means involvement. Let me say that again. Prayer in the will of God does not mean escape. It means involvement. If our prayers do not bring us nearer to the cross, they are out of God's will. These men said, Lord, open our eyes. Jesus did, and they followed him. Has he opened your eyes? Remember the Apostle Paul when he was still called Saul? On the road to Damascus, he was we're told at the beginning of the chapter, Saul still breathing out threats and murder and he's, he's going after the Christians. He's got legal documents in his hand. He's traveling to Damascus and he's going to find these former Jewish brothers and sisters who now believe in Christ and he's going to basically to get a hold of them and to try to convince them that they've made a horrible mistake and they need to recant and they need to come back to the Jewish faith. And the papers that he has says he's, he's given the means to use force to coerce that confession and, if necessary, to put them to death for being traitors to the Jewish faith. So Paul's on this road from Jerusalem to Damascus to do this. He's angry. He's filled with with hate. And he meets the Lord Jesus. And immediately he says, as he falls from, from his horse or he falls to the ground, whatever it is, and he immediately says, "'Who art thou, Lord?' He said, he said it in the old King James, by the way, in case you didn't know that. And as he said that, in that moment, he already recognized who Jesus was. Spiritually speaking, his eyes were open, but because of the bright light at noon and whatnot, God caused him to fall blind, if you remember this story. If you don't, go back and read chapter 9. And as the next couple or three days passed, the Lord speaks, as Pastor Mitch shared with us a few weeks ago, to this man, Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go to brother Saul, and I want you to speak to him. I've given you a message. Here's the message. You go speak to him. And he's like, Lord, I don't want to go talk to this guy. And as he goes, he goes in there, and as he does what God had told him to do, remember in that moment, something like scales fell from his eyes. He had already received his spiritual sight, but in that moment, he was given his physical sight back. And in this moment here, these men were given both spiritual sight and physical sight. Jesus had compassion. He touched them. What about you and me? You see, when we come to know Christ, when we believe the gospel, when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, as it it were, the scales fall from our eyes. Now, as we come to Christ, I think the point of this whole chapter here really comes down, it can hinge on The issue are, are we servants and slaves? Or are we idle workers standing in the the square waiting for someone to tell us what to do? This tells you what to do. You don't need me to tell you what to do. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, will tell you what to do. This chapter that we've studied contains some hard things for us to receive and practice. You see, if we love the things of this world, we cannot love God supremely. If we are not yielded completely to his will, we cannot obey him unreservedly. And if we seek glory for ourselves or if we compare ourselves with other people, then we cannot glorify him. The Lord wants us to realize that our coming to Him is not just a matter of convenience. It's not just a matter of saying, hey, I I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be judged, so I'm believing in Christ. You see, what God has done for us, I mean, His grace, we we are going to spend the rest of our lives trying to plumb the depths of the grace of God, of what He's done for us. And the point is simply this, that if you've believed in Christ, regardless of whether this was when you were a little kid or maybe much later in life, that there should be such, this grace should produce such a wealth of gratitude within our hearts that we want to say to him, like, like Isaiah there in chapter 6 of his writing in the Old Testament where he had this encounter with the Lord and we are told that he saw the Lord high and lifted up with a train of his robe filling the temple. And in that moment, in that heavenly reality, he was experiencing. The Lord said, just kind of out loud there in heaven, He said, "Hey, who will go for us?" And Isaiah was compelled in that moment by being in the presence of God, and He says, "Here am I, Lord, send me." And He said, "But I'm a I'm a I'm a dirty man. I'm a, a man of unclean lips, and and." the angel went with the tongs and he took a coal from the fire from the holy altar and he touched his lips. He says, no, you're not. I've made you clean. Many of us are not involved. I don't mean in the church. I mean in, in, in serving the Lord because we think we're unclean, because we think we're unworthy. But it's not true. God has taken that coal and he has touched your lips. He's given you his grace. He's given you his love. He's given you his mercy. He died on the cross for you. Like the man on the middle cross, the the thief on the cross who says, I'm here because of the man on the middle cross said, I could be here. That's you, that's me. And so my prayer, and I think the, the Holy Spirit's unction this morning for us is this, that we would grasp this. And that we, we would be all in. And that we would follow the Lord and that we would serve him. You, you might have the question, what, how do I serve him? What do I do? And I would tell you, go to your prayer closet and ask him, Lord, how do you want me to serve you? What should I be doing in the service of my king? You see, there's this verse in Luke, there's a beautiful verse that says, I want to be, a, you know, so doing. I want to be essentially about my father's business until the day that I meet him. That's not so that we can, you know, have this long list of works so we can develop a heavenly resume. This is just out of the goodness, out of the gratitude of our heart that's full. We're full because of what he's done. So here's the question today. Where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you understand the grace of God? Do you understand that you're full? He's filled you up. And are you willing to serve him? to be his servant, to be his slave. That doesn't mean you have to sign up and go to Africa. It just means you say, Lord, use me where I am. Use me with these kids I'm taking care of and that I'm raising. Lord, use me, use me here in my workplace. Use me in my home. Use me. You know, we have neighbors. Use, use me in my community. Lord, how do I do this? He will tell you. He will lead you. He will fill you if you are willing Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And so, Lord, this morning, we love you. We want to serve you. We want to be your servant, your slave. Show us what that means. Teach us, Lord. Answer those questions that are in our heart and mind about what it means to serve you. How do I serve you? What am I supposed to do in life? What am I supposed to do with my life? How shall we then live in light of what we've heard today? Lord, speak to us. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.